Hey there, welcome back to Point of Sale, the show where we break down great retailers, the supply chains that move them, and the data they use to make decisions. I'm your host, Andrew Cox, Senior Retail Analyst here at FreightWaves. And unless you've been living under some sort of massive rock, you have heard of what's going on or what went on at the Suez Canal. It's that we're still dealing with the after effects of the blockage, but the Ever Given, a massive container ship, locked up uh, one of the world's busiest canals uh, for a week or so causing ripple effects to uh, go throughout the global trade. So with me today to discuss the fallout of the Suez Canal, uh, what the impact to the U.S. ports is going to be, and talk about port congestion in general in the U.S. is Daniel Hackett. He is a partner at Hackett Associates. Hackett Associates is an international maritime research and advisory consulting firm. Uh, I got wind of Hackett Associates when I came across their port tracker that they release uh, every month in tandem with the National Retail Federation. It is an amazing uh, data set that you can watch to to find out more about retail imports and imports into the country. It's it's fantastic. And we'll bring Daniel on here in a moment. But before we do that, I would like to take a moment to thank my sponsor, ArcBest. ArcBest is more than logistics. Whatever you do, whatever you ship, ArcBest makes it easier for you to do business. ArcBest combines reliable capacity, innovative technology, and trusted relationships to take the complexity out of your supply chain and keep your shipments moving. That's what makes ArcBest more than logistics. Mr. Hackett, Daniel, thank you for joining me, and how are you? Doing well, thanks. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you're welcome. And this is your first time on the FreightWaves TV uh, platform, I believe. So give us a brief intro about yourself and tell us a little bit about Hackett Associates. Um, well, like you said, we're probably best known for the monthly report, the Global Port Tracker, which uh, we produce in partnership with the National Retail Federation. And that looks at uh, import volumes to the top uh, container ports in the US and Canada. And that's, like I said, a monthly report. It projects out about a year and also looks at the historical data as well. And so we try and take a slightly more broad view of what's going on with the container market. Uh, we also do consulting work. I've been uh, working with the Bureau of Transportation Statistics on their Port Performance Freight Statistics program since its inception. And we work with container terminals, we work with uh, railroad carriers, uh, so railroad companies, uh, and just generally help with logistics, especially maritime side of things. So, Daniel, uh, the Ever Given has floated, thank goodness. It took a long time. We needed the help of a supermoon and its uh, gravitational pull to, to bring some water to get it refloated. But uh, the challenges are just now beginning. The fallout will be will take some time. So uh, walk us through some of the, the challenges that we'll face. Uh, you know, carriers trying to move goods. They've been blocked up for more than a week now. Uh, tell us what the how long you think it will take to clear this. I think I've, I've read there's more than 350 ships trying to in the queue to get through the Suez. How long will it take to clear this up? So I think at its peak, it was about over 400 vessels. And then now it's down to about 200, I believe. But then bear in mind, that's half going north and half going south. Um, and I think from what I've been reading, it does seem like they're being, they're being moved very quickly. Uh, they're using uh, convoys of vessels to really try and help speed them through. Um, like you, I was also watching very intently. I think it's one of the, one of those uh, experiences where you really don't want to see it happen, but at the same time, it becomes gripping entertainment. And, and I think everyone in the industry was really watching with bated breath, hoping, <laughs> willing this vessel to to refloat so it can uh, get moving up the way. It was. Yeah, it, it was. 
I think yeah, you're right. It was, it was, it was, really, like, it was the free. first time you see uh, people on Twitter and people on the on social media having uh, memes about uh, logistics, having memes about maritime uh, shipping. It was it was quite the event. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's sort of depressing that I think container vessels and container shipping in general really only makes the news when something's going wrong. No one ever talks right. about it when it's smooth. It's it's oh, it's congestion and ports. Suddenly you hear about it. Uh, it's stuck vessels, suddenly you hear about it. And you're right, I've never seen so many memes and I've had friends being <laughs> sending me memes for the past week or so saying, have you seen this? Have you seen this? And so, yes, it's 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 interesting that it really entered the public consciousness. And I think it's, um, it's one of those things where because it was so visible, it was such a big vessel, uh, it was such a critical location, and it really is potentially holding up such a large percentage of global trade that the, you know, Logically and, and for the right reasons, the news was covering it. And it also was something that people, I think, could really conceptualize. It was a, a vessel physically stuck at a, at a strange angle, and so it made for, for great coverage. Like I said, for, <laughs> it's, it's a pity we don't get more coverage for, for the right reasons rather than the wrong reasons. But in t to go back to your question, in terms of how this is going to play out, um, I think six or seven days was sort of the point where we were starting to see vessels being rerouted around the Cape instead. Uh, there were certainly concerns that if it was going to be stuck longer than that, then there would be major ramifications. I think there will still be uh, serious long-term issues from this. When I say long-term, I mean several months. But I think it's worth noting that it'll be more for Europe than for North American ports. No, no. Uh, no problem. I was just going to say, you know, in, in a world of very confusing causes for some of the, the global events that we have, it, it was nice to see a very simple and, you know, you know, understandable uh, cause for something. So, you know, some, something that, that caused so much disruption. And also, yeah, it, it is very funny that you never know the name of successful ships. You only know the names of, of ships that get themselves uh, into, <laughs> into deep waters, uh, <laughs> into, into trouble. Um, so, yeah, so let, yeah, let's go through and talk about a little bit of the effects. So uh, I've read that one in three uh, ports, or one in three containers heading to the U.S. East Coast does traverse the Suez Canal. So it's obviously uh, a substantial amount of freight that moves to the East Coast that goes through the Suez Canal. But that canal is definitely most known for its route from Asia to Europe. So talk about some of the impacts to the ports. So, yeah, for, for North America, it's if you look at the East Coast ports, uh, somewhere like Virginia or New York, New Jersey, about half of their cargo volume by tonnage uh, comes from Asia. So not just China, but also India, Thailand, Southeast Asia in general. And what's interesting, though, is that not all of that comes via the Suez. Uh, a fair bit of it comes through the Panama Canal, too. In fact, by, by vessel service, more comes through the Panama Canal than through the Suez Canal. But the vessels coming by the Suez could potentially be larger just because it has larger capacity. So that makes it a little tricky. Unless you really dig into the numbers, it becomes a little tricky. So the, the number you mentioned is probably about right. Uh, the Port of Savannah actually has about, uh, I believe it's 70% of their cargo by tonnage for imports coming from uh, Asia in general, including, like I said, Northeast, Southeast Asia. So to what extent it's coming through the Suez, it's a little harder to say. But the other side of the, the equation to think about is that it's also usually weekly services. And because, <laughs> just to make life a little simpler, the, the delay was one week. So what that means from a congestion point of view is we, we may see some vessels arriving together, both the ones that were, uh, were held up in place. So you have several different services that if they are now transiting through the Suez Canal in a convoy, several services, on a, a particular week, maybe arriving at ports at once. 
and then the the following week services, uh, the the usual week spacing may be more uh, may be condensed as well, and so we may see more vessels coming in at a a, a short interval between them, which will cause congestion at the ports. Now, most of the East Coast ports haven't had much congestion recently. Uh, the port of Savannah is probably the big notable exception. And ironically enough, that's not even due necessarily to, to trade. Um, I think I was reading in uh, February and March, they experienced heavy fog. Now, January through March, uh, the port is sort of known for having fog issues. And so I, I, suppose, I suppose trade does come into, into play, given the, the large trade volumes meant that uh, the fog really had a significant impact this year. Uh, so I, I suppose it is all related. But that does mean that the Port of Savannah already dealing with large volumes is then having to deal with fog. Now we'll be dealing with inbound cargo volumes coming uh, in, in in waves. So it's it uh, there could well be ramifications at least for the next uh, month or two. Do you anticipate to see you know obviously not to the extent of the pictures we've seen from the San Pedro Bay? Do you expect to see that type of you know cargo ships lining up to get into the Port of Savannah or uh, up the up the coast in, into Virginia and New York? So we don't anticipate it, uh, Virginia and New York yet. So in terms of the Port of Savannah, they had earlier this year. Uh, and I think it was February, about 24, 20, between 20 and 24 vessels at anchor, wait, anchor waiting to get in. Now it's dropped to about a dozen. I think they were making good headway uh, with that. I think now that may probably hover around that level as these new vessels, uh, the delayed vessels from the Suez Canal reach. What's interesting also is uh, Maersk, MS, uh, sorry, Maersk and Zim just announced their new service uh, that was going to be calling at Savannah, Charleston, and New York, New Jersey, from China, and I believe it was Vietnam. And originally, it's or well, normally it's going to be calling in the order Savannah, Charleston, and it's actually initially going to start off calling Charleston, Savannah, and that's partly in reaction to the current congestion. And that service isn't even starting until May, so it does seem like the the shipping lines are already anticipating that April will continue to be congested congested at Savannah, uh, and potentially into May as well. So, like I said, it'll be probably a couple months for things to uh, to smooth out there. Likewise, on the West Coast, like I said, the San Pedro Bay is definitely congested, but they've been working their way through through those uh, waiting vessels pretty quickly. We're now down. I haven't checked in the last couple of days, but it was uh, significantly worse than it is now. I think now we're down to about twenty vessels, but you can't hold me to that, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, it's very fluid. Uh, I, I've heard mixed opinions on just imports into the East Coast over the next couple of weeks. Henry Byers, our maritime expert, believes that given the you know some of the congestion already in Savannah, uh, if you were to take a, an East Coast in general, that that he doesn't expect imports to really fall much, um, given even even given the delay at, because even given the delay created by the ever given that's that's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> Uh, but that's simply because there was already so much trade coming and the idea that you just mentioned about vessel bunching, some of these convoys yeah. arriving at similar times, what are you expecting? Do you, do you think that there'll be some lull and then followed by a surge in imports as these, as these uh, ships arri arrive, or do you think it's going to be elevated and congested uh, throughout? Yeah, we're, we're anticipating that volumes stay pretty level for, for the, well, who are usually these quiet months. I think an interesting uh, thing that we're seeing now is that Somewhere like LA and Long Beach, with all the vessels waiting, or Savannah with all the vessels waiting, it's not an issue of how much cargo is coming to the port in terms of the vessels. It's how much cargo can the, the, the ports themselves handle. And so we're looking at throughput. And the problem is, is the, the higher congestion levels actually serve to slow down some of the throughput. 
And so I think we're, we're projecting that volumes stay relatively level. Now, February obviously had fewer days in the month than March. So we're, seeing a, we're anticipating a bit of an uptick in March and February. But yeah, certainly not looking at any sort of seasonal low like one would normally expect in the, in the spring. Let's jump over to the U.S. ports and, and focus on those for, uh, for the time being. So obviously, the San Pedro Bay has been uh, the point of concern for most of the, he- for most of the media and, uh, and shipping community. What are we looking at now? Are things improving? Have things gotten better over uh, the course of the last three months? Where are we as we enter uh, the second quarter? All right, things are definitely improving. And I think, to me at least, the one thing that really stands out is the fact that even with all the focus on these vessels that are at anchor, waiting to berth and be unloaded, the fact is that there have been huge numbers of uh, containers moving through the ports. And this is especially in a time when you mentioned COVID, when a large number of the dock workers have been suffering from uh, either the uh, direct or indirect impacts of COVID. And so I think that's something that really hasn't been talked about as much as I think it should, that the fact that the operations are still going on at a really pretty decent clip, despite everything else that's going on. And I think also it's also worth noting that the, the number of vessels that are at anchor has been decreasing. So I think the worst is behind us from from my point of view. And you know the, the Chinese New Year um, celebration this year was a little bit um, was it was less than normal. Uh, I, I don't know how to exactly describe it, but many of the uh, factories that would shut down for a week or two didn't this year to catch up with manufacturing backlogs. But we have seen a decline in uh, Chinese imports, at least in the sonar data that we have over the past couple of weeks. Not as severe as the typical Chinese New Year drop, um, but you know, what are, what are your expectations? What is the port tracker saying about imports to the U.S. from China? So what's interesting is, is that in 2020 versus 2019, imports from China by tonnage, and this is a containerized imports by tonnage, decreased by a little less than 2%, whereas Vietnam increased by over 28%, and uh, I think it was Thailand increased by over 10%. Now, despite the, the disparity in those numbers, the fact of the matter is, is China still accounted for over 30% of the containerized import tonnage in 2020. And this is using US census data. So ultimately, even with the, the, the shifts to Vietnam, to Thailand, it's still ultimately China where the bulk of our imports are coming from. How is that going to shift ahead? I think this is... Uh, this is something we've been talking about for a while, to be honest. There's a is the manufacturing costs increase in China, both because of the employment, uh, the, the cost of employment has been increasing over there. There has been a natural shift to Vietnam, to Thailand, to Southeast Asia in general. And I think COVID really accelerated that to some extent, as the supply chains uh, were really tested and stressed. And I think we saw a lot of retailers looking at their supply chains and trying to come up with perhaps uh, looking long-term, how can this sort of situation be avoided in the future? And so I think we're seeing a shift to diversify supply chains, and that's been accelerated. Now, do I expect China to to significantly see a decrease of its market share for, for U.S. imports? Not really. I think, I think it will increase, oh, sorry, market share will decrease over time, but it's still, it's still going to be, you know, the, the huge, uh, the huge dominant market share. Uh, partner that we have. I think this is a good point uh, to talk about, you know, the difficulties, uh, not not from the manufacturing point of view uh, of, you know, actually creating the product in Taiwan or in Vietnam or anywhere else outside of China, because those are 
there are huge difficulties in doing that. China has built up its manufacturing prowess for decades now, uh, and it's far ahead of many other countries. But from from a port standpoint, uh, when you're looking at just getting product out of a port uh, in Vietnam or out of a, out of ports in Taiwan, talk about how what the differences between China's ports and the ports in other Southeast Asian countries are, and and how um, you know how how it is very difficult to 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 divert yourself away from China, not only for manufacturing but for shipping as well. I, to be honest, I, it's not even solely the ports. It's actually the entire infrastructure network that goes with it. Um, I, I think if you're having a, a brownfield site or even a greenfield site for a new port facility uh, in Southeast Asia or China, I think the, the the process of design is pretty similar, to be honest. I think what has to be taken into account, though, is how much of the infrastructure behind the port, whether it's the road networks, the rail networks, where are the factories located? And so I don't think you can take just the that, that slice of the picture looking at ports, but you have to look at the, the bigger picture as well. So even if you uh, build a port, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you build it, they will come. You need that manufacturing to be accompanied with it. You need uh, just the, the shipping lines to be able to integrate the new port locations into the, into the rotations. And so it's one of these things that I think ultimately because a port does take a long time to, or a container terminal does take a long time to build, uh, usually these things can progress together. I think, though, at the end of the day, it's all these decisions are taken um, in tandem with each other. Uh, the, the manufacturing, you, you, you'll see a new factory being built, for example, in, uh, let, let's pick a country, let's pick uh, Vietnam, but they're still going to need the client. Uh, so it, even that, even at that end of the 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 the, the, the even at that end, I suppose, of how things are, are are going, they're not necessarily going to be able to build factories without a sufficient number of partners willing to purchase their products. At that point, those partners will then be looking at how to ship those products to North America and so or Europe or anywhere else. And so, it really, it's part of a, a more cohesive uh, picture that's being built. Daniel, we spoke about how things uh, from a capacity standpoint seem to be improving on the West Coast. There's not as much congestion in the San Pedro Bay, not as many ships awaiting berth as we had uh, towards the beginning of the year. What is it looking like on the container availability side? Uh, we spoke previous to this that uh, containers, that the, the container manufacturing in China seems to be uh, picking up a little bit, but steel prices are very high. Let's just talk about container availability and how it's looking at now and in the next couple months. Yes, I, I feel like this is uh, container availability is one of those interesting things which began really a little over a year ago uh, in China, when it looked like when COVID was first starting to, to ramp up in China, there was started to be a a supply side question, and so some of the container manufacturing was taken offline. Then it shifted to a demand side issue in North America and Europe as COVID spread, and so again, container manufacturing was uh, a little curtailed. And then we had another factor going on, which was as retail stores closed in Europe and North America, retailers began to use their containers to store excess inventory. And that was pulling out empty containers from the market. There were fewer new containers being built. And so that was removing the, the new container side for the market. And so then suddenly we reached the summer of 2020 and, uh, and international trade comes back in a roaring fashion and volumes are surging. And suddenly, there's a shortage of containers. That's because some of them were never really re put back into, this, into the network. New ones weren't added into the network. And volumes were increasing. So suddenly, we have this issue where we need containers. 
At that point, manufacturing comes back online to start building new containers. But as you mentioned, steel prices have increased. The infrastructure spending in China has really remained pretty strong throughout COVID. And so that's kept uh, steel prices up. That's meant that it's more expensive for importers to, uh, to acquire containers. And so really it's one of those things where now we reach the problem of congestion. We have vessels at anchor, whether it's in San Pedro Bay, whether it's at the Suez Canal. And that means that these container boxes are sitting. And this, whether it's full or empty at this point, it doesn't make a difference. The problem is, is there are fewer of them flowing through the system, through the network, which just is just putting more pressure at a time when there wasn't much flexibility to begin with. And it's just almost this confluence of, of perfect events to create pressure on the number of containers that are available to be used. We need more containers than ever before. There were probably fewer new ones coming uh, over the past 12 months than there should have been. You know, hindsight, of course, is 2020. And there are more uh, containers sitting on vessels than there ever have been at any given point before. So it's just this perfect uh, confluence of, of events, which really is just putting pressure on, on container availability. So Daniel, I do want to bring our conversation to a close, but I want to give uh, everybody an opportunity to go learn more about Hackett Associates. Where can they go and find the Port Tracker and learn more about your firm? Uh, you can uh, check out our website, hackettassociates.com. I know the National Retail Federation puts out their press release uh, every month as well, which reports on the data that we produce. Uh, the Port Tracker comes out between the 7th and 10th of each month. And uh, yeah, it's interesting times to be a forecaster. I know that uh, we weren't the ones... <laughs> we, we we haven't been forecasting a, a huge uh, drop in uh, in 2020, and but at the same time, it's uh, there was a, a big resurgence in 2020 as well that we didn't didn't catch. So it's always interesting time to forecast. So I encourage you all to uh, uh, read our reports each month, try and figure out uh, what's going on, keep an eye on on the on the volumes. Yeah, you're certainly right about that, Daniel. Demand planning or forecasting in this uh, age of uncertainty is almost impossible. I was talking to Simeon Siegel on the last episode of Point of Sale, where he basically said increasingly less so, but uh, definitely true for right now. We're in this environment where we as outsiders have as much ability to predict a company's future from the inside as as the the company um, you know the company analysts do themselves because of all the uncertainty. Right now, it's looking at uh, consumer demand and consumer behavior. Suddenly, it's you know, we'll, we have to try and predict whether or not people are going to start spending money on services rather than purchasing goods. And you, know, you read uh, reports from different people saying different things. The Bank of America just put out a report saying that they think households are unlikely to spend the latest round of, of relief stimulus funding, uh, which is in stark contrast to what happened last year. But apparently in February, uh, three-quarters of households that received the stimulus uh, either paid down debt or put the money into savings rather than spending it. So even that, it's a big change in consumer behavior, which is just one of those things we have to try and figure out, get a sense of to incorporate into our forecasts. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. It's extremely difficult. We have the consumer market with a savings rate that is double the previous 10 years. It's probably even going to rise when the March data comes in. Uh, yet we have, I think, what is going to be a generational release of pent-up demand for services uh, in the back half of the year. So vacations, I think when sporting events and concerts open back up, I think people are just itching to do all the things that COVID has deprived us of. I know I am. I'm excited yeah. for concerts and festivals in the fall and and to travel a little bit. I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a great thing for the country and very cathartic really after this last 18 months. I'm hope that's that's what I'm hoping too. <laughs>
Yeah, well, you know, just keep along the track. I know that there are some variants uh, that, that are definitely causing some threats to uh, to derail this momentum that we've had with the COVID vaccines. But over 100 million vaccine doses given out now. The the, the U.S. Uh, economy added over 900,000 jobs in March. It just seems that the end is near. Uh, things are are looking up. So thank you so much for your time, Daniel, right. and uh, we'll be talking talking more soon. Great. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, everyone, that has been episode nine of the Point of Sale Show, the show where we break down great retailers, the supply chains that move them, and the data they use to make decisions. We'll be back next week with Danny Lowe of ArcBest. He is the Chief Yield Officer. We're going to be talking about everything from managed transportation uh, to where rates are going throughout 2021. You won't want to miss it. Please join us then. We'll, we'll be uh, showing this uh, live Wednesdays at 1.30 on FreightWaves TV, as well as FreightWaves LinkedIn and FreightWaves Facebook. We'll see you next week.